Welcome to Axios Pro Rata, a podcast that takes just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. I'm Dan Pramack. On today's show, a Silicon Valley billionaire buys Time magazine and some political math behind this past weekend's allegations against Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. But first, blockchain in the voting booth. So we don't usually think of West Virginia as being on the cutting edge of technology, but it recently became the first state in the country to utilize blockchain, the technology behind Bitcoin, in its election process. So here's how it worked. The state worked with a Boston-based company to create a blockchain-based mobile voting app for military members serving overseas. These folks and their families normally have to fill out paper ballots and then mail them into Charleston or to their local counties, but this let them simply do it with their smartphones. So the pilot was just for two counties during the May primaries, but it seemed to work, and it's going to be rolled out for all eligible voters in all 55 of West Virginia's counties this November. Why it matters is that if successful, this blockchain-based voting app could be a model that other states follow, not just for overseas military or for expats, but really for voting overall. It could really revolutionize the ballot box. Now, to be sure, there are skeptics, some who worry that blockchain isn't as secure as its advocates claim, and some who worry that this system could let users upload viruses to the voting systems. But clearly, the goal is admirable, even if some of the details need to still be worked out. This goal of making voting safer and more accessible. In 15 seconds, we'll go deeper on this with venture capitalist Bradley Tusk, who helped fund the West Virginia Initiative. But first, we are excited to announce an addition to the Axios newsletter family. Starting this Friday, we'll launch Axios Autonomous Vehicles, a weekly analysis of self-driving technology and its potential impact on cities and the economy. You can subscribe to this newsletter and all of our other Axios newsletters at signup.axios.com. We're joined by Bradley Tusk, CEO of Tusk Ventures and author of a new book called The Fixer, My Adventures Saving Startups from Death by Politics. So Bradley, your career, you've done a lot of things, but one of them is you managed Mayor Bloomberg's final mayoral campaign in New York City, and you tried to get him to run for president in 2016. There are new reports out that he is planning to run in 2020 for president as a Democrat. True? Not that I know of. I think that someone like Mike Bloomberg with his level of talent and ability and experience is always someone who's talked about as a presidential candidate. He also certainly has the personal resources to finance the campaign. I think the only really distinction between what you saw in 2016 and what you're hearing now is the realization that the country at the moment is so partisan and so polarized that whereas an independent run in 2016 you know, might have been feasible, it would be really tough in 2020. And I think that's what he's really been saying. Whether or not he chooses to run is, is still a totally open question. One other question, something happened and then I want to get into blockchain voting, which is one of the people you worked for in the past. You were deputy governor of Illinois, and that means you worked for Rod Blagojevich. There's been some talk that President Trump is considering a pardon for him. Would you support a pardon for Blagojevich? You know, look, I testified in both corruption trials, and from what I saw, both the judge and the jury were, were totally fair, and so I had no problem with the sentence. With that said, he's already been in jail for six or seven years, um, and if the president chose to say that's long enough, we're going to let him out, I wouldn't have an issue with it. All right. So let's get into this blockchain voting thing. So you helped sponsor the pilot program in West Virginia back in May during the primaries and, and now the expanded one next month for the general elections in West Virginia. From your perspective, why blockchain based voting? What's the secret sauce of that as opposed to some other things people have talked about in terms of adding more tech into the voting booth or to absentee ballots? 
Yeah, I mean, to me, the real key is that you've got to let people vote on their phones. The reason our country is so polarized and so dysfunctional is because so few people vote in primaries. And as a result, if you're a politician, you tend to do whatever response the inputs you're given, which tend to be on the far left or the far right. What I've seen in tech campaigns that we've run for companies like Uber or Fandle or Bird right now is people will advocate for something if you make it easy and convenient and compelling, which can happen on their phone. The difference is someone emailing their state rep to say, hey, leave Fandle alone or leave Uber alone is very different than someone casting a ballot in an official election. Blockchain at the moment seems to be the technology that allows people to vote mobily, which should increase participation exponentially. And at the same time, at least right now, no one knows how to hack blockchain. So it's a lot safer. We're testing out lots of small pilot programs around the country, started with deployed military from West Virginia in the primary. We'll do that again in the general. We'll have an announcement soon about municipal elections next year. But we'll keep testing it out to make sure the blockchain really is the right technology. You talked about nobody's figured out how to hack blockchain yet. But you've seen crypto exchanges hack. You have the possibility, or at least skeptics will say, there's the possibility that somebody using this app on their phone could, for example, upload malware to the entire you know, election system or an entire county's election system in West Virginia. Are those people wrong? Yeah, I mean, look, we've run four different security audits off of the very small pilot we did in West Virginia, and there's no indication that any of that so far is feasible. But look, we're always in a position where, and this is just like steroids and sports, whatever it is, the people breaking the rules, the people trying to enforce the rules are always in a foot race against each other, and it's it's always a close call. But from my perspective, you know, not trying to find a way to radically increase participation in elections is like saying, we don't want anyone to drown, so let's fill in all the swimming pools with concrete. Our system is broken. We've got to fix it. 80% of adults have smartphones in their pockets. We've got to find a way to make it useful. Well, I don't know. On Cape Cod right now, they're saying we don't want anyone eaten by sharks, so they have indeed shut the beaches. Bradley, as part of this, though, you know, folks who advocate for this, they'll make the argument, look, we already use a lot of electronics and technology actually at physical voting booths. And you've got just individuals, you know, counting the ballots. And obviously individuals can make mistakes. But that said, there is this, and you know this, there's this increasing skepticism over tech. And I know that's more a Facebook, Google thing, but tech itself has become politicized. Do you have any concern that if this is the way we moved to a kind of mobile-based voting system, that you'd have the losing candidate or the losing side basically say, this wasn't fair, it was hacked, or there was technology, as opposed to right now, no one really makes that claim about the little old ladies who are counting? Yeah, although having run a bunch of campaigns, including my Bloomberg's, that is what really happens is, you know, the little old lady at the end of the night says, you know, Bloomberg 243, Ferrer 158. And that's just taken as gospel. So I know how vulnerable the current system is already. Um, and yeah, look, people are going to complain for all kinds of reasons. And more than that, if you're a politician from either party and you figure out how to game the system and get elected, the last thing you want is me making it easier for you to lose your job by taking participation at the primary from, say, 12% to 60%. So every interest group, every union, every lobbyist, every politician is going to pose this with everything they have because they have power and they don't want to lose power. And this system really makes it a lot more diffuse and democratic. So um, you know, people are going to object for lots of different reasons. At the same time, I think about my 12-year-old and my 9-year-old. They can't envision a world where you can't perform basic functions on your phone. And so by the time they're a voting age, it won't be, you know, these complaints and concerns and excuses will just not be acceptable to them. So my hope is that between now and then, we've proven it out in enough different jurisdictions with enough different populations um, that people accept that it's safe and it works. I want to thank Bradley Tusk, whose new book is called The Fixer, and I absolutely recommend it. It includes 
an interesting anecdote about how had Mike Bloomberg run for president in 2016, there was going to be an option on the Uber app to basically get yourself to the polls that the Bloomberg campaign was going to pay for. Uh, Bradley, thank you so much. My final two after this. There is more news out there than ever before, but these days it's harder than ever to find it and to know what to trust. Axios AM takes the effort out of getting smart by synthesizing the 10 stories that will drive the day and telling you why they matter. Subscribe at signup.axios.com. And now back to the ProRata podcast. Now it's time for my final two. And first up is that Time Magazine has new owners. It's Salesforce.com CEO Mark Benioff and his wife Lynn, who are shelling out $190 million for a magazine that still has 2 million print subscribers, making it the nation's largest print title in news. Now, a quick admission, I didn't think this was happening. I had heard that Benioff was trying to buy Fortune Magazine, a title where I used to work and which is also being sold off by the same company. But word is that Benioff used this as a chance to help further some of his philanthropic goals, some of which have centered on things like clean oceans and homeless even if he won't be actively involved in day-to-day management or editorial decision-making. The bottom line is this is a bit like Jeff Bezos buying the Washington Post in that his main contribution will be dollars, particularly in an age where print media has struggled to keep its ink black. And don't be surprised if he's not the last tech billionaire to buy a legacy media publication, with both Fortune and Sports Illustrated still on the block. And finally, you've no doubt heard about the allegations of sexual misconduct against Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. And I'm not going to dive too much into it or even give my opinion on it, except to say this. How this plays out could have a major impact on economic policy, including infrastructure policy. And again, I'm not talking legal policy. If Kavanaugh goes down, Trump will nominate somebody who will probably vote similarly. So here's what I mean. There are a few red state Democratic senators, like Joe Manchin in West Virginia and Heidi Heitkamp in North Dakota, who were about to be forced to make a very, very tough vote on Kavanaugh. And now there either won't be a vote before the election, or if there is, their vote becomes way easier. They can vote no and say it's not necessarily because of philosophical reasons, but because of worries about the allegation. It's basically cleared their path, and it makes it more likely Democrats could flip the Senate, something that was almost unthinkable even a month ago. And if that happens, Trump is going to have to work with Democrats on economic policy, on infrastructure policy, even on big tech policy. It will, in short, change the landscape completely. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to producers Adam Gracia and Tim Shovers, have a great National Constitution Day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Pro Rata podcast.